Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report. I'm Vaga Maradian. This podcast version of our interview is brought to you by L3 Technologies. Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report. I'm Vaga Maradian here at the Farnborough International Air Show in at this historic airfield about 30 miles southwest of London, one of the world's most important air shows with leaders from government, military, industry, aircraft from all around the world, this year commemorating the 100th anniversary of the birth of the Royal Air Force, the world's first independent air force. Our coverage here is sponsored by Farnborough International and Leonardo DRS, and it's our positive honor to have Dr. Liam Fox uh, joining us, uh, Secretary of State for International uh, Trade, former uh, Defense Secretary as well, and I want to wish you a happy birthday on the second anniversary of uh, the Department for uh, International Trade. When you got there, it was just two people. Now it's 1,500 people. and 3,900. Uh, is it really? My God, I was a little bit dated on the figures. So uh, congratulations on that. Uh, I heard your address earlier on space. Uh, you know, it, it's always been interesting that Britain has been such an engineering power and aerospace power, but yet space was something that was not a focus item. You've are making it a focus item, and there are so, so many tremendous innovative UK companies. What's the message you're trying to deliver? What's the international trade space agenda uh, from your perspective? Well, the, the commercial opportunities for space are, are phenomenal, and we need to be placing the UK with its tremendous innovation and science base right at the center of that. We already have a very successful space sector. It uh, exports more than a third of its output, and so clearly from my departmental point of view, it's a, it's a really tremendous opportunity that we have. But uh, if we want to export more, people need to see that we're investing more in the UK itself, and so it's a win-win. It's a we get more investment into the UK, we develop, develop our capabilities, uh, and that makes it an even more uh, profitable export market as well. Um, you're going to be in the United States. You mentioned in your address space is something you're going to be talking about, but you're a passionate free trader. Uh, we've spoken in the past where you've made the case that free trade really has lifted the world and continues to be an engine of growth for the world, even if it does cost displacement, which governments rightly must address. From your standpoint, uh, we are now in a situation where transatlantic tariffs have taken effect. There's concerns about a transatlantic, if not a global trade war, obviously with the United States and China, which then also affects your interests and in another part of the world as well. Uh, talk to us about the message you're taking to Washington uh, at this very, very important, very delicate time. Well, we believe in the international rules-based system for trade. We think that if WTO didn't exist, we'd have to invent it. There are improvements that can be made to that. Uh, we understand the United States' concerns about issues like overproduction coming from China, uh, lack of transparency on what is state and private ownership, market access, and forced tech transfer. They're real issues that need to be dealt with. We don't think that the 232 mechanism is the uh, appropriate way to do that. But on the wider issue of trade, it's not just that free trade has taken a billion people out of abject poverty in the past generation. It's also to understand that trade is not an end in itself. Trade is one of the ways by which we spread prosperity. We get better allocation of resources uh, and efficiency in production. But it's also the means by which we underpin social cohesion. That social cohesion itself contributes to political stability, and that political stability is the building block of our collective security. And that's a continuum that can't be interrupted. If you interrupt the prosperity part of it, you will ultimately interrupt the security part of it. And we can't expect, if we interrupt global trade, not to have more mass migration and not to have more radicalization. So the, the message is that all those bits of that continuum um, are essential and not we can't just cherry pick the ones we want. 
Um, what, are, what do you think the impact is going to be on the British economy, for example, if all these trade actions, if it's unavoidable, whether on steel, aluminum, or any of the other, right? It started with a handful of things, but now is spread to thousands and thousands of items that fall under that rubric, uh, tariff rubric of, of, of point counterpoint. What's going to be the net impact on the British economy, do you think? Well, the potential impact is the slowdown of growth and the introduction of inflation. Um, because we'll be less efficient than in an open free trading system. That would be unfortunate for us all. And, and, and it's an unwelcome uh, distraction in many ways when we've got big issues to deal with on security, where, of course, we're hand-in-hand with the United States. We agree with the United States and we agree with the administration that the NATO governments are not spending enough on the defence. The fact that only four of us are meeting our 2% commitment is just not acceptable. And uh, as you remember, when I was Defence Secretary, uh, Robert Gates and I uh, long predicted that sooner or later uh, the Europeans would face an, uh, the predicament of an American administration that wasn't willing to tolerate the underfunding um, of European defence by the European nations. And that's been brought into focus, I think, by the Brexit debate, because as we leave the European Union, the EU members of NATO will be carrying only something like 20% of the NATO budget. One thing that we talked about, and even Secretary Gates would say this in a more nuanced way, which was you want to be able to step up the pressure but then also not undermine the cohesion of, of the alliance where unity is its paramount mission is political cohesion as an alliance. From your standpoint, is there a concern that some of this could backfire, that this pressure could backfire uh, to a degree, particularly even on the United States as, as nations, European nations, proud nations are spending more money, may choose to spend that more money at home rather than transatlantically, for example? Well, we have to understand where the threats lie. In areas like cybersecurity, uh, you cannot define that in the way that we previously defined uh, the threat space. Uh, and we've seen from Russia that it is a real uh, threat to our not only our national but our international uh, security, and we need to deal with that. So our spending in defence may have to have a different shape than it has before, and we may have to spend on things that we can't see to be able to secure the things that we can. Um, let me take you to Brexit, because I know your time is short and you, you're very generous, so I want to make the most of this block. Um, you're a proponent of Brexit, uh, a proud proponent of Brexit. Two of your colleagues, Boris Johnson and David Davis, uh, resigned. They wanted a little harder of a Brexit. Uh, you decided to stay. Why did you decide to stay, and do you think that the government and the Prime Minister's position on Brexit and going into these negotiations is the right approach? It is. Or what do you think is the right approach? Well, I think it is the right approach. You know, we have to have a compromise. This is a negotiation we're having with the European Union. We've made a fair and reasonable offer to them. Uh, but from the UK perspective, we have to remember that whatever agreement we get, we have to get through a House of Commons where we have no majority. Um, there are tensions in all the British political parties on the issue of Brexit, certainly in the main political parties. Um, so we've got to be able to find a deal that's acceptable to the House of Commons. Uh, and I think that what we've got at the present time uh, delivers on our manifesto commitments to leave the single market and leave the customs union. It guarantees that we honour the referendum, that we've ended the free movement of people, we will not be making big uh, UK donations to the European budget um, and of course will not have the jurisdiction of the European Court. They were the key elements for me. Uh, and I think that as we go forward, uh, it's now up to the EU27. It's what I say is uh, we need a people's Brexit, uh, not a bureaucrat's Brexit. In other words, we need to concentrate on the economic well-being and the prosperity and the jobs and the trade of the people of Europe uh, and not the political ideology or in some cases the theology uh, of those unelected bureaucrats in Brussels. 
Um, let me take you uh, two questions because I know I'm about to get the hook. Uh, question one is uh, a new uh, strategic defense and security review has been launched. Philip Dunn, one of your colleagues, former Minister of Defense Procurement, uh, you guys work together as I recall, uh, has produced a report for Gavin Williamson, the current Defense Secretary, uh, looking at looking at defense industrial questions and the question of sovereignty, which is something that's been very, very important to the UK, was important to you when you were defense secretary as well. Um, talk to us about what your role is going to be in this report because, you know, the defense and aerospace industries are critical from a national security perspective, but also from an international trade perspective, particularly the sovereign element of it. Talk to us about the role you're going to be playing in that review and shaping it to ensure that anything that comes out of that system is something like the Type 26, which has global export potential. Well, as you say, there are a number of different elements in that. Number one is ensuring we get continued investment into the defense industry and that they've got certainty and predictability in that. Uh, uh, you know, business can move around the world very easily. We have to retain it here in the UK. That means, of course, our research and innovative basis need to be strong and the government needs to feed into that from a different angle. Um, and, of course, we need to look at uh, sovereign capability and we need to look in terms of, of exporting. Is it flexible enough? Uh, the Type 26 was the most successful defence export we've had for a long time uh, in terms of, of w where we could sell it and, and what it could be used for. And that's, I think we have to think about that in the future, that it's not just about what we can provide for our own defence needs, but it's what we can do for our economic needs and to develop that global footprint in manufacture. Um, we, we have behind, uh, behind us a picture of the F-35, the Joint Strike Fighter, the Lightning II, uh, channeling a famous American name but also a famous British aircraft name. Um, British industry has about 20% of value of that airplane. Uh, and yet it exposes sort of the yin and yang of the American-British defense relationship. Intimately close, the most special defense relationship on one hand. UK, in order to deliver maximum capability, buys a lot of American hardware. The Poseidon is the case. There was talk that Wedgetail would get announced here, although it looks like that has been delayed. But so many other systems, the rivet joints, uh, Hercules transports, uh, are from of American origin. At the same time, senior British officials have always lamented about the access to that. There is not a lot of technological access that you get behind the curtain. You're acquiring a system, and some of it you're building to print, in fact, as opposed to some of your own technology. As folks say, it tends to be a one-way street. The future uh, combat air strategy is out. The Tempest aircraft has been revealed. Uh, that's two billion pound investment, which is the most significant indigenous UK investment in a new aircraft, uh, I would say probably since Eurofighter. Um, is that a message to the United States because all the best analysts in this town say that that, that money is likely to come out of F-35 spending if UK is going to maintain, preserve, and advance its combat air capabilities. Is that a message to Washington to say, don't take the UK for granted? No, I don't think it is. And I think that if you're looking at a future British project, um, it will have exactly the same implications as F-35 had, which is that a lot of the F-35 came from overseas, that it was an international collaboration. And I think any bu future British project would be the same. And I think that's the world that we live in today, um, that we are looking across the world for efficiency in production. And that means that, you know, you, you take a non-military element, you take a you know, 787 aircraft, it's called an American aircraft, but how much of it is really American? Um, and we live in a world where we've got very complicated and interdependent supply chains. That's what we have to live with. That's the reality of the global economy. And the old concepts of sovereignty that we would design, build every element of something as complex as a fighter aircraft ourselves, I think those days lie in the past. One of the, the things we'll want to explore uh, over the coming months 
um, as we move towards our free trade agreement with the United States is how we can get better cooperation in defence because one of the things that defence companies will complain about is duplication uh, because of um, bureaucratic regulation that companies are having to do the same work in America and the same work in the United Kingdom, which is a, a waste of money and for them a loss of profit. But you, you have been very uh, passionate about negotiating this agreement. It was key even before the Brexit vote when you and I would talk. Um, and the president himself has now come out with some very harsh rhetoric regarding uh, you know, that a hard Brexit would get rewarded with a trade deal. Anything less than a hard Brexit would be rewarded, would not be rewarded with a trade deal. What sort of a position does that put the government in? Oh, we've had, we've had working groups uh, with USTR and discussions with Department of Commerce uh, for months now. Uh, we're well down the road. It's uh, now based on what will be to our mutual advantage. All trade agreements are ultimately dependent on mutual self-interest. We're right back to Adam Smith and that's where we should be. Um, one, one last question. Do you think that um, the NATO alliance gets even more important for the UK after post-Brexit, which we've talked about also, about the importance of that and that you, that is the mechanism by which the UK stays connected with its allies on a continental basis? Are you concerned, given some of the comments made at the NATO summit, but also after uh, the summit that the president had uh, with Vladimir Putin, that that cohesion of the alliance could get tested at this point? No, I think that uh, NATO couldn't be more important for the United Kingdom, whether we're in the EU or not. NATO is the means by which we've kept the peace since World War II. It's essential that we maintain its cohesion and its capability. Uh, and I think that where the president um, really hit the nail on the head was, it's all very well to talk politically about cohesion, but you have to have both the capability to be able to make that a reality and the will to enforce it. Dr. Liam Fox, uh, Secretary for International Trade. Sir, thanks very, very much, and best of luck on your visit to Washington. Thank you.